Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Welcome to another exciting and exhilarating and all-around amazing episode of Once for All Delivered. I am co-host Andrew Smith. And I am co-host Caleb Castro, or at least that is what I have been programmed to say. Yes, that is what your handlers have tasked you with. Uh, Before we begin today, this is just a reminder, an ongoing reminder consider becoming a paid subscriber um what we get we reinvest in the show and uh make it better and make it more interesting unless we're just not good that too but you if, but we'll if at you, least try yeah and if if so in other words just pity us and uh and by uh you know supporting us uh and we will do something Yes, for the for the price of what a cup of coffee cost a couple of years ago before Biden took office, you can support us with a subscription. Well, now, speaking of politics, so we had been, if you were just joining us, talking about the... <laughs> speaking of Biden. <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> That was a smooth transition. If only we did things like that more often. So, yeah, yeah, if if you are if you are joining us today, uh, you know, you you might want uh, to take a listen to at least the the previous episodes uh, or or the past episode where we introduced the issue of uh, the relationship, we can say, uh, between the church and state. Um. It's sticky. It's it, it's a difficult matter, and you know I, He's I don't. He's a think sticky you, wicket. It's it's just a sticky wicket. Sorry to anyone that's in England that had to hear that. That was supposed to be British. So <laughs> we we just lost an entire country. Yep. <laughs> Hate it when that happens. First it was <laughs> Tajikistan, and now that. <laughs> tomorrow micronesia <laughs> anyway so, church and state yeah. church and state uh yeah it's a difficult problem um i mean really uh it, it it's something that does in a sense we can say doesn't have a particular solution of sorts um there's, I mean, this has been debated for, uh, I mean, over a millennia and a half at least, uh, or even perhaps you could say into the apostolic age. Um, this isn't to say there is not an answer, um, but we want to clarify first of all uh, to remember that we're not exactly experts, but we are are learning and growing uh, and sharing our findings, our thoughts with you all and yet i think we 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 do have uh for andrew and myself i think a a position that uh we generally interpret scripture and and its theological implications with 
So, yeah, that's that's just a little disclaimer. Yeah. And uh, in order to do this, in order to lay out our position, we want to look at a few of the key texts in Scripture in more detail. I know we uh, mentioned them last time. Uh, at least we mentioned one of them last time. We talked a little bit about Romans 13, but we want to talk a little more about Romans 13 as well as a couple of other texts. Yeah, and and just uh, we won't go into this text in detail per se, but just uh, by way of kind of uh, uh, setting forth uh, further the the interpretations and the you know very kind of certain positions that come from these things. Uh, Proverbs eight fifteen and sixteen. Uh, I'm just going to read from the ESV because that's what I have here. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles and all who govern justly. And let's let's note especially also that word justly that's utilized two times in these verses. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. So this this raises uh, already an initial question: What happens when rulers are not decreeing just? It, it we we can certainly say it's not authored by God, and therefore also not immediately from God. So, but then, what do we do? Going first to Romans thirteen, uh, what do we have there, Andrew? So Romans 13 is usually the passage at the center of discussions of church and state, and with good reason. It is one of the longest, as well as most clear passages in Scripture concerning uh, the relationship between Christians and the civil authorities. Um, There's a lot going on in this passage. So if you look at Romans 13, you do notice at the very outset that... um, it does make what is essentially a universal requirement, a universally binding requirement. Let every soul, every person, uh, without exception, be subject to the governing authority. So, uh, at least at the outset, there's really nothing here to restrict or limit so far. Um, We do have a principle here. And this is usually where the discussion turns, for instance, uh, when uh, governments are being tyrannical, uh, when there is uh, problems where the church and the state clash, many will just say Romans 13, 1, and and that's it, as well as verse 2, because verse 2 actually attaches this resistance of authorities to resistance of God. And that is all well and good. Um, That is certainly sound. But the issue that usually comes up when we're talking about Romans 13 is there is verse 1 and 2, but then there's more. Uh, There are some things that are said in the following verses concerning the civil rulers that are uh, in line with what Caleb read from Proverbs 8. Uh, Verse 3, I'm using the New King James, "...for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good." And you will have praise for the same. And then continuing in verse 4, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So here things get a little more complicated because 
Uh, yes, we've talked about people are to be subject to the governing authorities, but we also see in these subsequent verses expectations, requirements that are placed on these authorities. Basically, uh, how they are to be doing their jobs, how they are to be governing. Um, there's an expectation that rulers uh, promote what is good and punish what is evil. Now, this in itself, especially in our postmodern age, brings another question. Well, what is good and evil? Uh, what standard are the civil rulers held to? Um, are they simply held to something uh, agreed upon by the populace? Is it an issue of consent of the governed? Is it uh, an issue of social contract? Or is there something more to it? Well, I think uh, I'll just put my cards on the table at the outset here. Uh, when the Bible is talking about what is objectively good and what is objectively evil, it's talking about generally what is set forth in God's law, particularly the moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. That is the moral standard for what is good and what is evil now i say that that is our position on this show but i cannot say that is a universally held or agreed upon position others would say uh, that there is natural law that while it may share something of the same or similar substance of the moral law is not something that is argued or appealed to from scripture uh, that it is something that is merely present and visible and observable in nature, and that is sufficient uh, for rulers, even pagan rulers, to govern. There are others that will swing the pendulum another way, and uh, this is where we get into theonomy, where they say well, not only the moral law, but also uh, the Mosaic civil law, uh, all of the crimes and punishments as prescribed in the Pentateuch, uh, pertaining to the theocracy of Israel in the Old Testament, also those are the standard by which rulers are to govern. Um, so what we're taking here is sort of a mediating position, but I think an accurate one, and I think one that is uh, defensible not only from Scripture, but it has also been the consistent teaching of the Reformed Confessions and Reformed Theology. Yeah, um, before we look at uh, at that in the confessions, at least with the the Westminster uh, Confession, you know, I want, I want to highlight just a couple things there in in this passage. We want to note some of the particular terms that Paul is using here, because um, I think we want to you know try to make exceptions on on what he's saying uh, here or there. But even in that first verse from thirteen one, uh, the point is let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's not an exception here in terms of the subjection to the authority of the government. The, the, the question is, how far has that authority been given? Paul says there in that second part of verse 1, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So God delegates an authority to the civil magistrates to societal rulers to governments but what does that authority consist of and and is there a limit to that authority are they independent 
in, in, in worldly speaking, are they a sovereign authority? Do they have authority without any kind of bounds? We, we, we want to remember that in general, Paul's context here is he's writing largely to Jews in Rome, Jewish Christians in Rome, um, who may have had a, a concept in the back of their minds. Well, we're Jews and these, these guys are Gentiles. Do we have to actually listen to them? So, I mean, that, that, that's, that's a, uh, Paul is directly, uh, um, tackling that uh we don't know the specific reason or context or or the the event that may have caused this but his point is uh they are legitimate authorities why god instituted them as uh, into that position which uh from verse four uh when andrew had read uh the, the word was used in the new king james that the Civil authority, the civil government is God's minister for your good. Um, we want to remember that that word for minister is uh, really a servant, God's servant for good. Uh, someone that is appointed for the task of service. And what is that service that he is carrying out that has been delegated from God? It is for bearing the sword. It is for punishing evil. Part of this issue, though, is uh, like like Andrew had just said, what actually is evil? Generally, a, a state is going to think for themselves. You know, what I'm doing is is good. What I'm doing is the right thing. Why? Well, we're the ones that are either setting forth societal laws or and regulating and maintaining them. So, what we think is proper. Uh, is what is right. And those who violate it uh, are the ones that are in the wrong. The nature of what Paul is saying is a general principle, though. Submission to the authority in terms of what is actually just according to God's standards, whether the civil authority knows that or not. God is the one that sets this forth. Um, and you hear that what Paul says from verses 5 onwards God's wrath goes against the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That's a key word right there. Continuing on first. For because this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. There's there's something of a distinction here in that it is not the law set forth by the civil magistrates that is necessarily, and I say necessarily, owed and obeyed, but the law giver. Boiling that down, the law given by the civil magistrate can be wrong. But there's the question of of verse five one must be in subjection not only to avoid god's wrath but also for the sake of conscience obeying a law or ruling is not a fear of punishment from god but a positively obeying of what god has put on the heart for the christians for the sake of conscience 
to state this, uh, and this is my last brief note on this, to state this another way, if your conscience compels you to listen to this, to a state's ruling and obey them, um, what is it that's informing your conscience? Are you being governed by simply your your heart, or your, your natural heart, natural mind, the light of nature, reason? Are you being compelled by God's law? If the state or government puts an unjust law that is against the law of God, of what God's commanded in his word, then the obeying of God's law and doing what he requires is not a... Uh, obliteration of owing respect to the lawgiver of society. So let's say there's a uh, ban on public prayer, like in the case of uh, Daniel, right? In Daniel uh, 6. Daniel continued his routine of what uh, God requires of him. Now, he, he violated the law itself of the land, the decree from Darius that no one was to be praying or offering petitions to any god but the king, um, Darius. He violated that in the civil sense. That was something, uh, a decree that was made that was clearly out of bounds of the authority God had delegated to the civil magistrate, to the ruler. But he nonetheless respected and gave honor to the civil magistrate, to the lawgiver, by submitting himself to the punishment that came with it, the consequence of what occurred. That is, he was arrested and thrown in the lion's den. He did not necessarily seek persecution. And yet, that was a consequence. and And he went with it. I think that's that's a very uh, important thing to note. Submission and honor given to the civil authorities uh, means that we may face a punishment according to their laws, the world's laws or society's laws, while obeying God's laws. That's a way of, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean persecution is to be sought or, or being persecuted is, is what we're supposed to seek, but it is honoring God if we are still continuing with what is required of him, even if it brings, by God's will, punishment. Furthermore, I think as an extension of that, we have to be careful to not desire uh, a society in which persecution and this abuse of authority is the norm. You know, there's a line of argument that essentially goes... Uh, well, you know, like the early church, they were persecuted, but they were growing so much and they were uh, so pure in their doctrine and all that. And really, so if we even if we got back to being persecuted, it would help. I don't think that's a, a right or a healthy understanding of the proper relationship between uh, the governing authorities and Christians or the church. Um, We shouldn't be fetishizing persecution and seeking it and hoping for it. At the same time, if the time, if the need comes, we do face it. Another example, uh, sort of along the same lines of Daniel, but is that of the apostles in the book of Acts, particularly Acts 4, Acts 5, the 
local authorities of Jerusalem put out a decree that uh, essentially the gospel was not to be preached. They were not to preach or teach in Jesus' name. And uh, the apostles are brought in, they're tried, and they essentially say, you know, Peter's line in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than man, or other translations say we must obey God rather than man. Uh, If a decree of the civil government... Uh, causes us or requires us to disobey God, then we cannot comply. We cannot go along. And yeah, that may mean we face consequences. Uh, You know, Peter would eventually be placed into prison. uh, And then even further down the road, he would eventually, as all the apostles save John, he would be martyred for his faith uh, by the civil government. Uh, So those things do come. Those things do happen. But that doesn't mean that being persecuted is a sign necessarily that things are the way they should be or things are right. Um, one of the things, one of the effects of Christianity being salt and light in this world is that we've come to have a society, at least for the last couple hundred years or so in the West, where uh, we can reasonably expect not to be persecuted for our faith. And I don't think we should just simply. Uh, toss that away or think low or think nothing of that it has been a grace of god that things have been this way and we should pray and hope that it should continue and i think you know this is even consistent like with confessional teaching when you look at the belgic confession in article 36 well you know one of the the duties of the civil magistrate that it talks about is that the gospel should have free course if you have a civil magistrate Uh, putting things out that either directly or indirectly uh, hinder the spread of the gospel or the worship of the church, we have a problem. We have a magistrate who is taking powers and exercising powers that it doesn't really have. So right right there again, powers it doesn't really have. And that's what has to really be distinguished here. Uh, Romans 13 is talking about... Insofar as the civil magistrate is, let's say, acting in a just manner, that is wherein their authority lies. He's setting out here in Romans 13 the general principle that in general they are to be obeyed. And why? Because they are appointed by God. The two ways uh, that this is that this goes in the error, uh, Andrew mentioned one, basically taking on a total passive obedience to to rulers. This is uh, like like you had said, Andrew. The 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 idea that you know, well, the the early church was just doing their thing or whatever and wanted to be left alone, and we're asking, okay, just just don't persecute us. But what you were reading Acts four, there, there's also. Uh, was that Stephen in Acts seven, where there is a straight up calling, like calling out people? The Jewish leaders, uh, we have to remember, were actual leaders and authorities, not just in a cultic uh, worship sense, ecclesiastical sense. But there, there was something of that they were, uh, they were sub societal leaders to the Jews. Uh, on the other end, there's the idea of the divine right of kings, which is what the bulk of Christian history uh, since the time of Constantine and, and uh, Theodosius I, uh, what we mentioned in the last episode, uh, since 
about their time in the fourth century uh, onwards. Um, it didn't really start corroding and breaking down until the Reformation of the 16th, 17th century onwards. That divine right of kings is, is uh, another expression of uh, the government has absolute authority um, because they are uh, uh, ordained by God. There, There is an element where, yes, kings and, and leaders are divinely appointed. There is their right of existence uh, by divine um, institution. They have the divine right to exist as being put into place by God to serve him. The divine right of kings, though, does not mean an absolute right for the monarchy to legislate according to what is right in his own eyes. You know, so, this is why some uh, uh, other groups will, will grab on to, uh, you know, the idea that the civil leaders have to be thoroughly Christianized um, and that things are run by church law or, or uh, that, that the church is over um, the civil government. So that way the civil government would uh, rule rightly. Both a passive obedience stance and the divine right stance takes the concept of the civil magistrate into an absolute terms. Um, and that, that can't be the case. Uh, there are clear areas where the church um, is authoritative according to what its commission is. So the, the stance in the, of the relationship between church and state is basically, it's not that the state is over the church and it's not that the church is over the state, but they do stand side by side according to their, their divinely appointed commission or according to the authority delegated by God. Um, and these two aren't the only institutions in society. Uh, there's also the family, the the uh, the school. You know, there's there's the uh, the academies. There's you know there's 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 an area of of business and economics and whatnot. There's multiple institutions, and what we have to acknowledge is that there's crossover between these institutions. There is a legitimate crossover for the sake of keeping each other accountable in their appointed task. They're supposed to do what they were instituted to do. And if they transgress those boundaries, um, then they should be called out. But each one has its own operations that it is concerned with. One is not greater than the other. And what Caleb has essentially sketched out here is the idea of sphere sovereignty. There are all of these spheres, all of these areas of life, uh, facets of society that are ordained by God, each with their particular purposes and powers, but also with particular limitations and an ability to uh, sort of be a system of checks and balances to each other. And this isn't uh, merely a novelty. I know some of the discourse even recently has been uh, coming after, for instance, Abraham Kuyper, who uh, wrote a lot and taught a lot concerning this view that, well, he was an innovator 
that he was coming up with something uh, previously unseen. But you can even uh, go to the language of the Westminster Standards, uh, even the revised Westminster Standards of the late 18th century, so well before Kuiper, and you see in there a provision such that uh, in in particular situations, it's not to be a normative thing, but uh, in, in extreme situations, the church may petition the state for various things, may call it to correction and uh, obedience in cases where the state is not doing what it should. This can probably sound, uh, I think, pretty foreign to a lot of people. A lot of the uh, political theology, uh, teaching of church-state relations in our day is almost completely hands-off as it pertains to the church and the state. But in our Reformed tradition, there is uh, that is not the case. That is not how it has historically been understood. I think one note of context, and before you jump into that with uh, the Westminster Confession, uh, you mentioned there's a revision to the Westminster Confession. Yes. The uh, 1789, I believe, was when it was done. And and where was that revised? In these United States of America just formed. So, uh, so that right there is a very, uh, very particular aspect, to, I think, to draw out um, or to, to keep in the back of your mind, rather, as well as uh, with Kuiper. Um Remember that these confessions originally were written in that context of a more uh, theocratic Christendom ruling. Uh, there was there's a history deeply entwined in Europe's history of the church and state being conflated. Uh, there was that back and forth power struggle who was who was superior to the other, right? Uh, we've talked about that a good bit now. There's a particular context where, where uh, Abraham Kuyper uh, in the 19th century was writing a lot uh, and developing his concepts of, of sphere sovereignty, the antithesis of common grace and whatnot in address to the state church. The church in the Netherlands uh, was, was uh, the reformed church. And it was it had uh, the state had clear abuses in uh, in its authority over the church. So he was looking to break down any concept of church having too much power over the state and society in in terms of rulings, um, which we can give an example later of when that becomes an issue um, in a more everyday sense. But then also the state. Uh, exercising too much power in in transgressing the commissions of the church. The United States is a bit of a, a, a unique, uh, what could be called experience, uh, an interest, it, it, the American experiment or a project that did have the concept of freedom of worship and separation in state since early on. But how far does that separation state actually go? It can go way too far, of course, but the Westminster Confession revised takes a very good biblical stance on the right relationship, because there is a relationship between church and state. And another thing to consider, as we've already discussed before, 
just because the American experiment promises uh, freedom of religion and separation of church and state, this was not conceived in a situation where pluralism, as we would know it now, was the case. Essentially, at the American founding, almost everyone in America was some kind of Christian and predominantly Protestant. So what was essentially being sought was a consensus among various groups of Christians, ranging from you know, Reformed to Anglican to even Roman Catholics and Quakers and uh, Baptists and the like. But, but again, all, uh, at least broadly, Christian. And so um, we also have to keep that in mind when we uh, think about separation of church and state and freedom of religion as it pertains to America. Yeah, the gist here is, first of all, um, we, we retain the concept even though it is uh, not a monarchy uh, in America, as in many places nowadays, the state of so-called for the people, by the people, duly elected, it is still nonetheless appointed by God legitimately. So it has its divine right to exist, though not the divine light right to govern however it wants. There is not a dichotomy in the separation of church and state, a so distant, so uh, detached secular divide between the two that, that they should not meet, that the church shouldn't have a voice or influence in society. It should not rule over the state, but just as the state shouldn't rule over the church. Um, there are places where they must give account to each other. The, the, the church, for instance, let's say inside of a, of a local congregation, let's say there's some kind of uh, abuse scandal going on. Uh, sadly, that does happen. A sexual abuse scandal or something where the church, the office bearers in a congregation has the duty uh, under God morally to report this to the state and hand them over to the to the civil magistrate for a civil punishment. Okay, they aren't only suspended from the use of, of the table or uh, of the sacraments, or and they're not just excommunicated. There are also civil uh, repercussions for these things. God has appointed that the government be his servant in bearing the sword. Um, and so that is for a immediate punishment for evil. But let's say the church doesn't report things. Sometimes that also does happen. Sometimes a, a congregation likes to think like that. Oh, that it's their own affairs. They're they're autonomous. You know, and so they're self governing. Uh, they're their own specific community uh, or institution in the world, distinct from from the society. So let the church govern her affairs. Is it overstepping its boundaries if the state enters in and orders the the congregation or orders uh, the consistory to give evidence in the uh, and, and and interview congregants and whatnot uh, in the this case of abuse in order to arrest this individual? 
And that's one such example of uh, the state providing a check, uh, I guess, if you like that language of checks and balances on the church, but then it can go the other way, too. What if the civil magistrate is proposing legislation, for instance, that is rather contrary to uh, God's moral law or that would be particularly injurious to the church? I mean, we could think of one that just passed... In recent weeks, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which may go down as a disaster for the protection of religious liberty in this country, there may, in situations like that, be a place for the church as the church uh, to uh, not only like teach their congregants concerning these things, but to actually petition the civil magistrate, address the civil magistrate uh, concerning... Uh, the problems with with such actions or even for instance you could think of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, when the state ordered churches closed Uh, churches had and many churches exercised their right to for instance seek out remedies in court for one but also uh, some did because of the divinely appointed authorities of the church Uh, the elders, the ministers that God had given to rule over them, uh, deemed that, no, actually, we are obligated to God to continue to meet, and so we will continue to meet, but also uh, potentially to seek out legal redress, uh, to seek to have such edicts overturned. So we can see that the door does swing both ways. There may be times where Uh, The state may need to involve itself in the business of the church in legitimate ways, and then the church may need to involve itself in the business of the state in certain situations. In both things, it's uh, the state and other civil institutions, including, say, uh, schools, they are separate and yet must work in cooperation. So it is separate but cooperative. There, there. That's not always gonna to work out well. Uh, there, there's time where I mean we're we're it's part of our our sinfulness. We we don't want to cooperate. Uh, we do want to exercise greater authority over others. Uh, the school, the school is an independent thing, uh, in in a sense. Um, we, we won't go into the issues of uh, of state run schools. Uh, versus parochial that is church run schools but also in a sense families uh families don't directly govern in uh schools uh there's a general entrusting to the teachers for the education of the children parents involvement tends to go towards a immediate involvement uh such as say a school board a parent teachers association where they can help in in that checks and balance process um people from the church can get onto these boards and uh and or churches can get onto these boards and in these associations to help call to account but they cannot necessarily or rather they do not they do not exercise their rule over a church or some part of me in a school in the same way it would it, it can easily be seen to become a a quick 
um, abusive system if, say, there's one enormous prominent family, very rich, very influential, powerful, that is really behind the scenes directing um, a, a school and school board's affairs. We could easily see that 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 is a uh, a wrongful transgression. All this to say, there are uh, legitimate boundaries between these various institutions, uh, these various bodies in society. The church is one institution that is very particular in its spiritual calling in, uh, in preaching the gospel. But there is cooperation and involvement between both positive and negative between these various spheres. And this is to say that in the sense of the church... Yes, her, her her primary task is a preaching of the gospel, but this isn't restricted to within its doors and its own institution. But the church's task is missional. So this involves going out in both witness and evangelism, but also in uh, using or speaking the truths of scripture to rebuke, correct, to reprimand, and to teach in what is uh, good and righteous to these other institutes. And so with that, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this discussion. I know there's a lot of issues here. Uh, there's a lot of different texts and uh, matters of theology and the like that come up when we look at the relationship between church and state. Uh, we hope, though, that this has been helpful to you. And as always, uh, we're open to your feedback. If you think, well, that's just the silliest thing I've ever heard, you can let us know. And uh, uh, if your complaints are good enough, we'll we'll even talk about them. We'll see if we can address them. But as always, we like to hear from you. So reach out to us on social media. Email us at ofadpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what you think. Um, we will be talking more about this in coming episodes. The Christian and culture probably still have some more to do on church and state. So we'll we'll come back to this and also still help us come up with a pithy sign-off phrase because we still don't have one. Pithy. Sign-off. Sign-off. Well, that's that's it. We got it. Yep. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. Until next time. Pithy sign off. Pithy sign off. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our Substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding member, Eric Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once For All Delivered. <laughs>